Father, thank you for this time you've given us today. Thank you for this morning uh, that we can be together to sing your praises, to declare your excellencies, and to be instructed from your word. And I pray you prepare our hearts that uh, we would uh, have a right uh, heart towards what you say in your word and that you would use it to instruct us and that we would grow and we become more and more like your son Jesus in whom you are well pleased with. And so we thank you for this time. We ask you to bless it richly. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, have you watched the uh, news lately? Well, if you have, there's a lot of things going on that a lot of people don't like from whatever side you might look at. Uh, If you look at the stories in some manner or fashion, it seems like each and every one of them has to do with someone complaining about somebody or something that they don't like or whatever it might be. Now, certainly, we have an overwhelming amount of areas in which uh, we can complain in, right? Uh, We might be complaining about what the government should be doing or not, uh, but politics is not the only area in which we might complain. You see, uh, what does the world complain about? Well, the world complains about uh, traffic jams, slow drivers, long lines, crying babies, misplaced keys, cold food, noisy neighbors, tight clothes, loose clothes, work situations, our bosses, co-workers, families, relatives, parents, spouses, uh, finances, church, pastor, whatever it might be, the music, the way things are done, the sermon. In regards to complaining and disputing, uh, we can be tempted to complain about a lot of things. Now, the world just functions that way because they don't know Christ. They don't have the power to not complain. And so that's the way the world is. They complain and argue about everything and dispute. That's the world. But we as believers should not be complaining and disputing about anything, as we're going to see. We're going to see that we are commanded to do all things without grumbling and disputing. And it's been said this is one of the most disobeyed commands in the New Testament. And we need to be reminded because the Lord wants us to, as we will see, shine forth rightly because we are lights in the midst of a dark and wicked world. So we're going to see how we are to live the Christian life, but more specifically that we should be shining righteously in a dark world. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're continuing our look through the book of Philippians. And it is about 62 AD. The Apostle Paul is writing the church. He is under house arrest in Rome, and he is about to go before Caesar. He may live or die. And he is very close to the Philippians, having been the one who shared the gospel with them in their founding uh, 10 years earlier. Now, Paul, in this letter, has already revealed his thankfulness Uh, for God's past work in them and his present work and what he will do, that he will complete the work that he has begun. And he has prayed that their love for Christ would abound in true knowledge and discernment so that they'd make right choices, choose the excellent things that glorify God. He has made it clear that his circumstances of imprisonment have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, and he knew that Christ and desired that Christ would be magnified in his life. 
And within that, he recognized that whether he lived or died, to live was Christ. To live was to serve the Lord and thus serve the body of Christ and to die is gain. And then he turned to the Philippian circumstances, encouraging them and exhorting them and commanding them to walk as heavenly citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, to stand firm, striding together for the truth, not afraid of the opposition, knowing that's a sign of their being on their way to glory and their opposition's on their way to destruction. And we saw in the beginning of uh, chapter 2 that we are to be walking in the context of unity in the body of Christ. We are to have unity. We are to be thinking like Christ. And, and what that looks like in practice is to do nothing from selfishness or vainglory or empty conceit. But in contrast, regarding everyone else as supreme, surpassing or superior than ourselves, scoping out ways to looking for to regard others as more important than ourselves. And we saw how this is done. It's done only when we have the mind of Christ. We are to have this mind in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he was God, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're to be thinking like Christ thought, and it's when we think like he thinks, when we have his word dwelling richly in our hearts, and we see others the way he sees them, and the way we are to see them, that we're going to act differently. And because of his perfect example of selfless humility, we see that he was exalted back to his rightful position, that at the name that Jesus possesses, at the name he has, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And it's from that we have the implications on what we are to do. We saw the commands and that we are to uh, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are to have a right, respectful uh, attitude towards the Lord. We are to see sin rightly. We are to work out, which means allow what's inside of us, what God does, to work out in our behavior. We're to work it out with fear and trembling because God is working in us. God is literally the one working in us. And we saw that working out was literally obeying, as the Apostle Paul said, just as you have obeyed, not only in my presence, or my presence, but now in my absence. Obedience is the working out of the salvation that God has put in us as He changes our hearts and minds. When we obey His word humbly, like Christ, our example, who was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then from this point, we come to the first practical command after being told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in us and we see today that we are to do nothing or do everything without grumbling and disputing we're going to see this is an evil sin and we're going to see that we should not be this way and if we are it could be an evidence that maybe we don't know the Lord or we have been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin We're to do nothing like this. And we're tempted every day. I tell you right now, we are tempted every single day to complain and grumble. Because there are circumstances that are not the way we would like. There are people that don't do the things we want to do. There are situations that come upon us that surprise us or whatever it might be. And we are tempted to complain and grumble. But we are to be different. Because we are, as we'll see, lights that shine in the world. We are. So with that in mind, how are we to live the Christian life? I believe we're going to see that we should be shining righteously in a dark world. 
Now, because uh, what we're going to see today is connected to what I just uh, reviewed, and it's also connected to uh, a portion that we won't get to today because of time, I want to read through all of that, and I'll tell you where we're at. Let's go back to verse uh, 12 in chapter 2 of Philippians. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that's where we finished last time. And now our passage, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Now, that's what we're going to look at today, but it is connected to the next portion. What we're going to see today is the temporal reality that what we should be doing based on not grumbling and complaining. We're going to see also the eternal reality next time. Notice where he says, holding fast the word of life, verse 16. So that in the day of Christ, I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice Upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge, rejoice in the same way as you share your joy with me. We're going to see instead of complaining and grumbling, we should be submitting to the Lord, obeying him. And that's going to bring joy in our lives. Have you ever been around someone who's complaining and grumbling? Is that joyful? No, it's not. It's a great burden. And we've been those burdens, haven't we? We certainly have. If you haven't, then I don't think you're alive because we all sin, right? But as believers, we are not to be this way. We are not to be this way. We are, we are to be those who will continue obeying as we have before. So then they're going to be looking at verses, uh, verses 14 and 15 today. But again, they are based on verses that come preceding. We saw already that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are to be doing that. Not to work for our salvation, but work out that which God has already placed in us. He has saved us. He has delivered us from from darkness. He has given us his spirit and he has enabled us now to understand his word, to think differently and thus prove his will or demonstrate his will, to act differently. And we saw we should have the right attitude. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, phobos and traumas. You see, most of our problem is that we don't have a right attitude towards God and who he is and then what he has done. He sent his son to die for our sins. He paid the full penalty for our sins. And we take sin lightly at times. And we're going to see where to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And part of that is doing all things without complaining and grumbling. We have a wrong view towards how terrible that sin and other sins are at times. We have a lightened view. And so we are to do it with reverence and humility and dependence on the Lord, fear and trembling. We see that example of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. When he came to the Corinthians in fear and trembling, wanting to know only about Christ, he came in the context of dependence and humility, and that's the fruit that you will see of fear and trembling before the Lord. And so this, we are to be working it out because God is at work in us. Work out what God is working in you. As he uses his word by his spirit to convict you, to change your mind, it should work out in obedience in your life. So with that, we see and come to our passage today. 
where we're going to see how we are to live the Christian life, and we'll realize that God is doing this to his own good pleasure. It pleases him when we walk by faith. It pleases him when the life of Christ is manifest in us. It pleases him when we do not complain and grumble about anything. Now, certainly we grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin. And I hope you have the same desires that I have. I want to please the Lord. I don't want to grieve the Lord. And I want to be convicted about when I fail, when my attitudes are wrong, so that I can change and, and be more like Christ. And I hope you have the same desire. And so if you do, God's word will work in you today. So I encourage you to humble yourself and be be willing to listen to God's word so that you can see yourself rightly and then walk rightly before the Lord. So then we have our passage today. And we're going to see, first of all, we are to do all things without complaining and grumbling or arguing or, or, or disputing so that we will shine righteously in this dark temporal world. And as I said, it's also so that we will also glorify God in the day of Christ. We'll see that next time. So we're going to look at the temporal realities today and then the eternal realities, Lord willing, next week. They're all connected. So then notice our passage. Do all things, verse 14, without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. So then we have the very first real application of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. The very first command after that command to do so. It's in the context of obedience. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, this is an imperative command from the living God through the word of God. It's not a suggestion. It is a command from God to us. And when we disobey it, we are disobedient. We are rebellious towards the Lord when we choose to have bad attitudes towards other people, as we'll see. When we choose to grumble and complain about people or circumstances. We're going to see it's very serious. We need to fight that temptation because no temptation has come upon us except that which is common to man. And God is faithful to provide a way of escape that we may endure it. It's an imperative command. We are to be obeying, working out our salvation. This is extremely important to the Lord. Obviously, it's the first command in the list here. And folks, we can become dulled in this Christian culture. We cannot see complaining or disputing like God sees it. You see, we live in a Christian culture that doesn't basically fear and tremble before the Lord. We live in a culture that downgrades the seriousness of sin in the current evangelical church. A culture that tailors sermons around the felt needs of the flock, and thus their grumblings, by the way. But folks, as we will see, complaining and grumbling, complaining and disputing is a serious sin. It's the first one on the list. And sadly, we can take it so lightly, or we can be hardened by sin and begin to take it lightly again. And today, I hope, is a day for true believers here will analyze our hearts rightly and respond rightly and be changed and be changed. So we are to do things in the context of fear and trembling, all things without grumbling and disputing. Now, it's important to realize this command is to believers It's to the Philippian church. They have a true relationship with the living God. They have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They've received the Spirit of God. They are saints. They are those in whom God is working in them. It is for true believers. 
If you try to obey this apart from the Spirit of God and a relationship with Him, you will be maybe able to do it externally. You may look very righteous, but on the inside, as we'll see, you won't be pure at all. It's only because of Christ that we were able to obey this command. Now, it's in the present tense. It means keep on doing everything without grumbling and disputing. Keep on doing everything. Everything you do, do it without these things. Everything you do, as we will see. All things, literally, it's emphatic. If you read the Greek text, it would say, All things do continually without grumbling and disputing. Does that leave room for any area to grumble? Well, they didn't. Do, they said something I didn't like. Well, they did something I didn't like. Does that give room? Not at all. I have a serious issue, physically speaking. Does that give me room to grumble or complain? I'm not talking about talking to the Lord and sharing your, your heart with Him as we see the David in, in difficulties. I'm talking about complaining, as we will see, and grumbling and disputing. So what does he mean by this term, these terms grumbling and disputing? I think it would be very profitable for us to take a look at the scriptures relating to these terms and some examples that we have in the Old Testament which will show us really God's view towards these sins which we can take so lightly or not even realize we're doing because we've gotten in a pattern of being grumbling, complaining, or jerky around people. When things don't go our way, we don't like what we see or whatever it might be. So what are these terms? He says here, first of all, do all things without grumbling and disputing. The term translated grumbling here speaks of verbal expressions of discontent or displeasure, often accompanied by feelings of annoyance and anger. Usually we find when we are annoyed about something, we end up grumbling either under our breath or actually grumbling to people. Verbal expressions of discontent and displeasure, often accompanied by feelings of annoyance and anger. The synonym for this word would be murmuring. You know, that murmuring that goes in your heart and sometimes comes out in your lips. It's translated murmurings, grumbling, complaining, complaining. All those translations are valid and the word carries the sense of all of those. It's used three other times in the New Testament. It's used in John chapter 7 to speak of the muttering and the grumbling among the multitudes who were looking for Jesus and he wasn't at the feast. Where is he? They wanted to know why he wasn't there. It's used in Acts 6, translated complaint concerning the Hellenistic Jews complaining against the native Jews because there the Hellenistic were being overlooked for their meals. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It's also used to speak of complaint in 1 Peter 4.9. We are to be hospitable without complaint. We're to serve one another without complaint. And you know what? When you serve sinful people, when you're around sinful people, there's going to be many opportunities to complain. That's, that's what the world does. But we are different in Christ. And we are to be different because we are children of God. When those things come up that cause us to be tempted to do so, we are not to do it. And when we do, we are rebelling against the living God, as we will see. So we have this grumbling, and it's the way the world functions. 
Those who don't know Christ live in the context of grumbling and complaining. Whether it's at work or at home, at the supermarket, on TV, whatever it is, this is how non-believers function. When things don't go their way or things aren't right, when they get irritated or whatever it might be, when people say things they don't like, when they hear something they don't want, whatever it might be, and we are tempted to respond in the same way. Do I need to further explain? We understand what complaining and grumbling is. And we are commanded to do continually, habitually, all things without that. Without that. If you're a true believer, if you name the name of Christ, complaining and disputing is not at any level right. You see, we used to do it before we were saved, but unless... But if you've been saved, we are no longer to do it. You may have good reason in your mind. You may think you deserve to do so, and that's an evidence of something wrong in your heart. That's part of the reality of what comes underneath the complaining and grumbling that we need to deal with and have our hearts changed by the Word of God and by the God of the Word. So with this in mind, the Philippians, I believe, were doing well. He said, just as you have always obeyed, keep obeying. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I believe if you're a true believer, by and large, you are not complaining and grumbling all the time. You may fall into it. And, and if you're deceived or hardened, if you're really fallen into it, that's not a good thing. God's going to discipline you. He's going to discipline you. He already is disciplining. But non-believers do it all the time. But true believers should be, by and large, not doing this. But we do fall into the temptation on a daily basis basis just be around other people for about five minutes right and you will realize there's temptation to grumble and complain so with this in mind we have this command first of all to do all things without grumbling but what's the second word the word is translated disputing the word comes from the greek word dialogismos And we get our word dialogue from that. Dialogue. It carries the idea of reasoning. And what's interesting, it is often translated, actually it's translated almost every single time in a negative fashion, by the way. But it is often translated evil thoughts or evil reasonings that from that come sin. You see, our arguments don't start on the outside. They start on the inside, by the way. When we reason about things in an evil manner, we don't see things from God's point of view as a humble servant seeing others as more important than yourself. When we reason, we have the rights to address these things this way. It is evil reasoning, and it will manifest in dialogismas, or these arguments, as we'll say. It's used 14 times in the New Testament, and we never see it in a favorable manner. It's always negative. Again, it's often used to translate or speak of evil thoughts or reasonings. It's translated evil thoughts in Matthew chapter 15, verse 9. And also that come from the heart, by the way. We see the same in James chapter 2, verse 4. It's used to speak of an argument that arose among the disciples in Luke chapter 9, 46, in, in which who was the greatest? And then the same word is used by the Lord Jesus in the next verse to say their evil thoughts were behind that argument. It's evil reasonings in our head. They're reasonings that become arguments, by the way, or disputes. 
Now, this is not saying that you can't have a discussion with another brother or sister. This is not saying that you can't have a discussion with a spouse or someone you have a disagreement with. But that's in the context of love and seeing others as more important than yourself. This is speaking about disputing. This is speaking about disputing and arguing. And I think we all understand this also, don't we? It is the opposite of what we saw earlier in Philippians. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, arguing every day. No, it doesn't say that, does it? No, it says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. You see, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So if you're elevating yourself, that's empty conceit, by the way. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Let each one of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the opposite of these evil thoughts, by the way. And yet we all know the temptation when something happens, someone surprises us, whatever it might be, something happens in our lives and we get caught off guard. We are tempted to react in a sinful way. Arguing is not good. And we all understand it, don't we? It's sinful dialogue based on sinful reasoning. Jesus calls it evil thoughts. And so we are commanded, all things do continually without complaining and arguing. All things without grumbling and complaining. All things without disputing and arguing. And this is a serious sin, as we're going to see. And there's no room in the believer's life for it. There's no room for it. Now, love covers a multitude of sins, but it grieves my heart when people complain and argue and grumble. And I hope it grieves your heart, too. All things do without complaining and arguing. Serious sin. Now let me share some uh, passages from the Old and New Testament to reveal the seriousness of this based on God's perspective. Based on God's perspective. Even though I'm going to share from the Old Testament, I want to go to the New Testament first to show that God says this is what it's about and this is what it's going to do for you when you look back at these things. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we have a discourse on the Israelites, those who didn't know the Lord, apart from a remnant, by the way. But yet God had interacted with them. He had led them out of Egypt. He had shown his mighty works. They had seen it, but they continually, habitually sinned against him. They're just like those who don't know Christ, and we are never to be like them. And that's the examples we're going to see. We are not to be this way because God hates what they did. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers who were all under the cloud all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses, or were identified with Moses. That's what it means. In the cloud and in the sea. They followed the, the, the Moses who, who God used to lead them out of Egypt, and, and they followed that cloud which God was using as Moses led them, Right? And he says here, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from the spiritual rock who followed them and the rock was Christ. 
they had every opportunity to do the right thing. They had every opportunity to walk rightly, as we'll see. But yet, nevertheless, with most of them, remember I said there's a remnant of true believers, but with most of them, what? God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as, as, they, cra- as they also craved. And do not be idolaters as some were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, by the way. And by the way, we're going to see that when they grumbled, they were trying the Lord. You see, when you grumble, you're testing God, as we're going to see. We're going to see that. Try the Lord, as some of them did, and, and... were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyers. There's our word grumble. Now these things happen to them as an example, and they are written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then it talks about uh, not uh, fleeing idols, right? And then no temptation coming upon you. These things were written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Well, what things? The true stories of the failures of the Israelites and God's discipline unto death for those things that they did. They're written for our instruction. They're written for our instruction to show us how much God hates this sin. How much he hates this sin. Turn to Exodus chapter 15. God had miraculously delivered his people from Egyptian bondage, and they began to complain and grumble. Exodus 15, verse 23. Now, there's a lot of scriptures, and I'm going to hit highlights of it. I'm not going to go through the whole Old Testament story, so I'm just going to hit highlights. You can read through them thoroughly on your own. But they began to complain about food and water and their circumstances. The basics of life, where you live, what you eat, and what you drink, right? Food and water and where you live. Exodus chapter 15, verse 23, And they came to Marah. They could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. So, verse 24, the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? It doesn't sound like grumbling, saying, What shall we drink? It is grumbling, because they're not trusting God to provide through the servant that he had brought forth, Moses. So they're saying, What are we going to drink? They're grumbling. It's not a simple question about what to do. It's grumbling. God says they grumbled. They grumbled at Moses. Look a little farther down in the chapter to chapter 16. Then they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. Uh, It's very interesting how uh, the translations in our language, wilderness of sin, right? It really was that, wasn't it? Right? which is between Eliam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after the departure of the land of Egypt. Hey, it's only been two and a half months. Okay? And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel did what? Grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And all the sons of Israel said to them, Would we have died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt? Would that we have died by the Lord's hand in Egypt? When we sat by the pots of meat and we ate the bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us 
this whole assembly with hunger. This is terrible grumbling, by the way. They're grumbling about the, the, their circumstances. They're grumbling about their leadership, by the way. We're going to see most grumbling is usually done in the context of authority, whether it's the government over you, whether it's of marriage relationships, whether it's a relationship in the church. It's usually done in that context. Usually done in that context. Ultimately, under God's authority. Look down a little further in chapter 17 of Exodus. You can read the whole thing. There's a lot more to this than just this, but let's look at chapter 17. Then all the congregation of sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and encamped in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people did what? Quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? You see, our discontent is testing the Lord because God has promised to provide us, hasn't he? And when we, have ang- when we have complaints, we are testing him. We are not trusting him. He says, why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted, for, thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? What about when the congregation grumbled later on when they heard the report of the spies? The spies went out, spied out the land. The, the godly spies, hey, the Lord's going to give it to us. Caleb and such. The, 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 the non-believers, no way. Looks too, looks too hard. They're big guys. It's not good. It's not good. They're functioning based on their sight. And that's where grumbling comes from. Functioning based on the fact of what you see rather than what God has said in his word. What you feel and experience rather than what God has declared is true. Look at Numbers chapter 14. Turn up to Numbers chapter 14. These things are written for our instruction. That we would not crave evil things. Right? They're written for our instruction. Specifically, by the way, on whom the end of the ages have come. Numbers chapter 14. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or that we, have been, or that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. They're in full rebellion to God's authority, and thus they are grumbling. They are grumbling. And Moses goes on to, and after Moses goes to the Lord, notice what the Lord response. You can read the middle part, but look down in Numbers 14, verse 26. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, saying, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? Folks, grumbling is a serious thing. Complaining is a serious thing. Don't you dare complain, brother and sister. We need to confess it when we do. Don't complain about your circumstance. Don't complain about a situation. Don't complain about a person. Don't complain. Don't grumble. We're going to see our grumbling is against the Lord. It's against the Lord. Look here, what he says here. He says, uh, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? 
I have heard the complaint of the sons of Israel, which they're making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. You know, they're saying, we're going to die in the wilderness. We're going to die. That's what God's going to do. Well, guess what? That's what's going to happen to you because you're grumbling. So I'll do to you. I'd be careful when you grumble, by the way. Be careful what you grumble about. This is written for our instruction, by the way. It's written for our instruction. What you grumble about may just come through. What you grumble about. And it did for them. Your corpses shall fall in the wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, for 20 years old and upward, who have what? Grumbled against me. It's a serious sin. Serious sin. We see it later on. You know what's interesting? They grumble against the, the, the leaders later on in, in verse six, chapter 16 of Numbers. Look at chapter 16 of Numbers. And they rose up before Moses, verse 2, with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. These are the guys that think they're something, by the way. And they assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone far enough. For you know, I like it when those kids shows when they read this, they may make us you've gone far enough, you know, you say that and you can just see how, how evil it is, right? You have gone he says here, you have gone let me read this, you have gone far enough for all the congregation are holy. Hey, we're just as set apart as you. We're just we can lead just like you can. Every one of them and the Lord is in their midst. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. They're saying, rebellion time, why are you the guy leading? We're all holy. We're all holy. We could do it. Now Moses fell on his face, and and after uh, he goes to the Lord, we have the Lord's response. You can read the middle part there, but go down to verse 31, chapter 16. Then it came about, as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground... That was underneath them. See, Moses challenged them. Hey, if the Lord's with us, this is what's going to happen, right? And then you know that that portion. And it came about after he finished speaking all these words that the ground was under them was split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with all their with their possessions. So they and all that belonged with them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. They were laid low. They grumbled against the Lord and were destroyed. They grumbled. Looked a little farther, but you know what? They even grumble about what happened to them. Look down in verse 41. But on the next day, the congregation, the sons of Israel, grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, You were the ones that caused the death of the Lord's people. <laughs> right? The ones who fell in with the earth opened up, right? So they're grumbling about that. They're grumbling about that. And what's the response? It came about, however, when the congregation assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned to the tent of meeting, and behold, a cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. Then they fell on their faces. Now we know Moses entreats the Lord, and God is gracious based on his, for his name's sake. But God's response is, let me consume them instantly. We might think a little differently about grumbling when we realize that's the wage of sin. It's death. But Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. 
And we need to take sin not lightly because we should think about it in the context of fear and trembling, right? Grumbling and complaining is a serious, serious sin. It's a serious manner. And we have these in the New Testament saying very specifically these things are written for our instruction, written for our instruction. And I hope we have been instructed today. If you walk out of here and you complain or grumble, you have a bad attitude, ah, Lord have mercy on you. See, grumbling is a characteristic of those who don't know Christ. Yet we as believers are tempted every day to grumble and dispute. We are. And we need to see the seriousness of it. We need to have God change our hearts that we would respond right. That we turn from evil. The temptation comes. We turn to the Lord. We allow his word to remind us of the seriousness of sin and God's faithfulness to deliver us from that sin. And we turn from it. Just as you have obeyed, always obey. Keep obeying. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God at work in you. Now, folks, indeed Christians, as we saw back in the Old Testament, indeed Christians are tempted to grumble against those in spiritual authority over them. I've seen this like you wouldn't believe. Many people grumble and resent the decisions I've made as a pastor, the ones in the body that God has given me an authority over. Maybe you have a different opinion. You want things done differently, but God has not placed you in that position. And you see the same thing with Moses and them. Satan uses the grumbling and complaining to very effectively separate the body of Christ. I'll tell you that right now. One pastor writes, Arguing is the result of rebellion and a consistent second-guessing of those who, unlike Christ, refuse pain and suffering as part of God's plan and purposes. And virtually every instance of suffering, the whiners get in the face of God's leaders protesting against their pain. They seem to forget when they contend with God's leaders, they're really resisting God himself. That happens in any situation, in a marriage, where the husband is, 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 is over the wife for a time, right? Equal in Christ's sight. It happens in relationship to the government. God has placed government over us. It happens in your work relationship. God has placed unbelievers over you. You're to do your work hardly unto the Lord, not unto men. When you grumble about your work, you're grumbling to God and against him. In every circumstance, in every situation. And we are called to do all things without complaining and arguing or disputing. And again, this doesn't mean there isn't a dialogue that can happen in the midst of those relationships in a godly way, in humility, seeing others as more important than yourself. But if you find that irritation going on, you find that pull on the inside, that's not from the Lord. It's no coincidence this passage comes on the heels of the exhortation to think like Christ. To have the mindset of humility, to be a humble servant, to see others as more important than yourself. Indeed, grumbling and disputing and arguing are the fruit of a lack of humility in the moment. And those who do so place their desires for whatever reason, good or bad, above everyone else. And the result is ugly and God hates it because it's ultimately against him. When you're tempted to be discontent, to have displeasure... Those feelings accompanied of annoyance and anger towards a certain person or situation for whatever reason, turn to Jesus. Be instructed by the Old Testament and us in whom the whole, the whole end of the ages have come. 
Turn to Jesus. No temptation has overtaken you. That's in the context of that passage in 1 Corinthians of grumbling and immorality and all those things. No temptation has overtaken you such as common to man. You're no different than anyone else. We have the same temptations. Don't think you're different because your circumstances. That's a lie. He says, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. I believe the Lord uses his word by his spirit to remind us, don't do that. Remember what happened to the Israelites. Remember my view towards that. Be instructed. Be instructed. We are tempted to grumble and argue in difficult circumstances rather than trusting the Lord. We're tempted to grumble and argue against our bosses rather than doing our work hardly unto him, to the Lord. Enduring ill treatment with patience. Ladies, I'm sure you're tempted to grumble against your husband's dispute with them, maybe for good reason on the surface, rather than trusting the Lord, winning them without a word through your chaste, chaste and respectful behavior. And I could give illustration after illustration that hits each and every one of us because we are all tempted. Just remember, disputing and grumbling reveals a lack of humility and trust, and it is an elevation of self-interest and ultimately is against God. All things without complaining and disputing. At this point... There should be some confession going on, or it should already be going on if, you're, if you've done this. And we have. We fall. Say, Lord, forgive me. I did it. And you'll be forgiven. Set free. If you'll humble yourself. But if you're unwilling, if you still got excuses, well, they said this or that, I did it this way, then that's, that's sin. That's sin. Humble yourself. And then from this point on, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. When you're tempted to complain and grumble, don't do it. Don't do it. And at this point, we're going to see there's a temporal purpose and an eternal one in next time we look at. But the temporal purpose, look back in our passage in Philippians. Temporal purpose. Very interesting. Chapter uh, 2, verse 14. Do all things without com- grumbling and disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and, and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights. He's saying, uh, in short, uh, he's speaking of our witness to the world, our witness in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Those who continually habitually grumble like the Israelites did, I believe. Those who don't know the Lord. Now, for the sake of time, again, we're only going to see the first purpose, but there's a clause here. It begins with the word that. It comes from the Greek henna, which means so that or, or, or that, and it introduces a purpose clause. And the purpose clause is the first one we see is the temporal one we'll look at today, and then the eternal one we'll look at verses 15 and 16 later, or 16 later. So then, we are to do all things without complaining or grumbling, first for the purpose of that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. Now, you might have a note in your NASB, or become. You might have a little note there, and there'll be in some other versions. This phrase translated, you may prove yourselves to be, is really only one word in Greek, ginomai, which means to become, to become. I think it's a better translation. 
Well, what is it that we become when God is working his salvation out in us, right? When we are obeying him and we're not complaining and grumbling. What is it that we become? Notice he says that you may prove yourselves to be, or literally that you would become continually, habitually, blameless or blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. That you would become blameless and innocent. Now, we've been saved, and in Christ we are blameless, right? Because of the righteousness of Christ. But practically speaking, at times we are not blameless and innocent because of our actions. This book is moving towards the obedient side of a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And it shows in the midst of a dark world. He says that you would become blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. Now this term blameless speaks of outward behavior that is without fault. Behavior that cannot be faulted or blamed. Now you can blame anyone for anything, right? But it can't righteously be blamed or faulted. It's used in Luke chapter 1 verse 6 to speak of Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking, that's their walk, that's how they behave, walking blamelessly, blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of law. There's nothing on the outside with Elizabeth and Zacharias that you could look at and say they weren't obeying God's word. Okay, that's the outside, that you would externally be blameless, right? It speaks of the outward appearance that cannot be faulted. But yet the reality is, a non-believer can walk around church and be blameless in a sense, can pretend to be a Christian, cannot be having affairs, cannot be getting drunk, cannot be, can look really godly, right? On the outside. You see, the Apostle Paul was blameless, same word, chapter 3, verse 6, when he wasn't saved, Saul. Blameless in regards to the law. He did everything that was there. You couldn't point a finger at him and say, oh, you broke that law. But the reality for believers, it's not only that we are blameless outwardly, it's that we are pure inwardly. Notice the second word. The word translated innocent. It speaks of something that is unmixed or adulterated. It spoke of wine without water, metal without an ally, alloy. An unmixed heart, something that is sometimes translated pure. This is this blamelessness on the outside is, is generated from a pure, unmixed heart. That you would be on the outside blameless and on the inside pure. Don't grumble and complain. Don't argue. Don't dispute. So that you will outwardly be blameless and on the inside you will be pure. You see, some people cannot argue and complain all the time. They can go around on the inside and be very blameless on the outside. Boy, he has such a great attitude towards everyone. On the inside, boiling over with, with grumbling. There can be people who are walking around here, men who are acting very godly, but yet on the inside are lusting after all the women. There could be uh, women who are walking around here very godly, but on the inside, internally angry towards people. But see, believers, when we obey the Lord with the mind of Christ, we just we will be outwardly blameless, that you would become blameless and on the inside innocent. Practically speaking, in our day-to-day walk. Blameless and innocent. The term innocent uh, is used in Romans chapter 16, be innocent of what is evil. When Jesus used it, be as innocent as doves. Same thing, be pure. 
unmixed, unmixed. We are to do all things without complaining or for the purpose, in order that we would become blameless and innocent, or or demonstrate that. They're trying to give the translation we already are in, in, in position and practically speaking, but the reality is this is speaking about our practical reality. Because if I complain and argue, I don't become blameless and innocent, do I? I'm not outwardly without fault, and I'm not inwardly pure, Right? But when we obey the Lord, we become that in a practical sense, which the world is going to see in a practical sense. And notice he says here, children of God above reproach. The very fact that we are children of God should motivate us to reflect our Heavenly Father's moral characteristics as we trust and obey Christ. Grumbling and complaining and arguing completely inconsistent with the identity of a true child of God. Children of God above reproach. In the midst, as we will see, a perverse world, a a wicked world. The term above reproach spoke of something that was unblemished or without spot. That on the outside, which was without spot, spoke of uh, the animals that were unblemished for sacrifice. So when someone looks at you, there's no spot. And the spot is in the reality of your relationship with Christ. You're You're the real deal. You're not spotted and blemished because of sin. Because you're a complainer and a disputer and an arguer. You're a child of God reflecting the nature of your Father in heaven as you trust Christ and think like Christ. Above reproach. Above reproach. For children of God, we, ought to, we are children of God and we ought to act as such. And when we don't, we are blemished and spotted in the context of the world. We're blemished and spotted. We need to confess that. We need to, to turn from that. We'll be forgiven. God will forgive you for everything because confess our sins and move on from this point, humbling ourselves. When we're tempted, don't do it. Don't go there. Go to Jesus. And when you fail, confess right away. When the child of God who has been adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ grumbles and complains, he is subject to the blame and fault before the world. It's interesting, the world will do everything that's wrong, but then when you do it, they'll blame you because they know you're a Christian, right? That's true, right? Grumbling goes to the core of our relationship with Christ. It is inconsistent with our true nature as a child of God. We trust our Father. We rest in Him. We rely on Him. I don't need to worry about the situation sermon. I trust Him in relationship to what you're saying, what you're doing, what's going on around me. I trust Him, therefore I don't complain. 1 John chapter 3, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and has not yet appeared what we shall be. We know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Purify yourselves, brothers and sisters, that's your that's your destination in glory. Do it now. Say no to sin and trust Jesus instead. Stop grumbling and complaining. And notice in our passage, as we are obedient children without blemish, notice the sphere in which this happens. He says, children of God above reproach, back in Philippians 2, 15, the end, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. 
We live in the midst of a world full of people that are crooked and perverse. The term crooked means bent. It comes from the Greek word scoliosis, where we get our word scoliosis, curvature of the spine, right? It's bent. It's speaking of, of that which is curved, that which is twisted. It misses the mark. You see, everyone apart from God, apart from Christ, is not morally right or morally straight, but crooked. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It can also be translated, interestingly, perverse or unjust. speaks of moral corruption. That's the state of mankind apart from Christ, and we're in the midst of that, okay? We really are. And then the second word here is used to describe mankind apart from God. Notice what it is. Crooked and perverse generation. The first one was an adjective, if you know, if you know English. This one, translated perverse here, is diastrepho. It's actually a, it's actually a present participle. And it speaks of one who has been twisted or perverted in the past, and they are still twisted and perverted now. It's happened. The term diastrepho spoke of that which was on a potter's wheel which had a mishap. It got distorted. It got perverted. It is not what it's supposed to be. And folks, sin corrupts, and sin corrupts mankind, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. It's speaking of people, speaking of the world. You see, the world, because of sin, is separated from God and walks in a crooked, perverse state. And indeed, the world complains and argues about everything, but this should not be in the lives of the children of God, who are renewing their minds with the word of Christ, humbly seeing others as more important than themselves. And notice we have, uh, we, we live in the midst of this, end of verse 15, among whom? Among non-believers, he says, you continually, habitually appear as lights in the world. We are lights in the world whether we like it or not. It's how our light shines, by the way. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine in such a way that they'll see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. When our light, we are the light of the world and we are complaining and arguing, our light is not shining in such a way that that's done. It's, it's, it's stained, it's spotted. This term appear means to shine. It speaks of a continual shining. We are those in the midst of a world shining. And the term translated lights here speaks of stars or luminaries. Stars, it could be translated stars. Just as the stars shine above in the darkness, we shine in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation down here. In the same way, it's a moral shining. You see, light is related to righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And as I mentioned, we are the light of the world, as Jesus said. And we are to let our light shine in such a manner that the world sees our good deeds and glorifies our Father who is in heaven. Bob read that passage earlier in Ephesians chapter 5. We are to no longer walk in darkness. We are light in the Lord. Therefore, we are demonstrating or proving those things that are righteous, true, and, and, and right. We are the light of the world. And in our passage, we are to do everything without complaining and grumbling. Notice here, because we are shining as lights. Brother and sister, when we are 
blameless and innocent as God's children above reproach, we shine in the midst of a dark, perverted world. The temporal reality of why we are not to complain and grumble is very important. We are the light that God has placed here in the body of Christ, that people would see it, that they'd be convicted of their sin, that they would turn and trust in Jesus Christ. I don't think anyone's going to ask why you have hope in Jesus when you complain and grumble all the time. I'll tell you that right now. Stained, blemished. But in the midst of difficulties, difficult people, difficult situations, things that you don't agree with, things you don't like, you don't respond that way because you're trusting Jesus. You're going to shine in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. The world complains all the time. And the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit, is telling believers here in Philippi that we are to do nothing without... We are to do everything without grumbling and disputing. For the purpose that we would be outwardly blameless, inwardly pure, with no spots in a sinful world in which we shine as shine like stars in the universe. Very important. And next week we'll see there's an eternal reality to it. So not only are we to not complain and grumble, we're going to see that we're going to rejoice and are to rejoice instead, to be joyful. How are we to live the Christian life? We're to do everything without grumbling or disputing. Let me ask you this. What's your view of complaining and grumbling, disputing and arguing? What's your view of verbal expressions of discontent or displeasure that are accompanied by feelings of annoyance and anger? What's your view of that? What's your view of arguing? Hopefully, we have learned and have been instructed from those from whom the end of the ages have come. And we've seen that we are to do everything without that, that God hates it. It's against God. And when we do and we obey him, we will be those who are blameless and inwardly pure with no spots in the midst of a dark, sinful world in which we shine as luminaries. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It is convicting and it is good. It is so good. I thank you for it. And we all have sinned. We all have fallen short. And I pray for those here who don't know you, who who live a life of being irritated and upset about this or that. That's because they don't know you. And they grumble and complain and argue. Lord, may they see their sin and turn to Jesus and be forgiven. And Father, for those of us here who, who are yours, may we see this sin rightly in light of how you have described it in your word, in light of uh, the fact that we should be working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, for anyone who's been complaining and grumbling and arguing and hasn't confessed it, Lord, may they confess it. May they humble themselves before you and be right and be forgiven. And may all of us do so, not not grumbling, not arguing that we would be blameless and pure, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which we shine as luminaries. Thank you for your word, Lord God, and thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.